Hello and welcome to episode three of the 5QI podcast. I am your host, Canon Carlos, also known as Culture Clap on the interwebs. And in this episode, we have a conversation with Mara Zapeda from Zebras Unite. And to be completely honest, I was surprised at just how wonderful this conversation was. I What they're doing at Zebras Unite is really lockstep in line with personal aspirations of my own. And being able to learn as to how they arrived to the work that they are now doing was really a fantastic opportunity that I feel so thankful to be able to share with y'all. So, without any further ado, what say you? We proceed. Well, I suppose without any further ado, Mara, thank you so very much for joining me here on 5QI, but the first and sometimes more pressing question, who are you? Thank you for asking and thank you for having me. Well, uh, I often answer that question by talking about where I came from, from my parents. And so I am the daughter of a painter from Honduras and my mother is a cellist. Um, uh, my father passed away a couple years ago, but my mother lives in California. And so that upbringing of being around artists and all that that entails very much informed who I am. So I think of myself as someone that um, took a lot from that experience. I think of myself as someone who's creative, who loves working with other people and collaborating, and who's very much uh, attempting to do that work in a way that helps us all transcend to become something bigger and more of ourselves. And so that's what I get a lot out of in the process of collaboration. That is so super wonderful. So super wonderful. Well, uh, as you may have read, um, you know, I'm really trying to understand and learn more from the, the, the problems that people are solving and the obstacles that they've overcome or are overcoming or building workarounds in their path. What is one specific obstacle or problem that you are currently confronting in your work right now or have confronted that you'd like to bring to our table? Sure. Well, I think we found each other through the Zebras Unite movement, which is um, certainly we're, we're biting off a big, I guess, quote unquote, <laughs> problem in that movement, which is that we are attempting to try to imagine a different type of economy and an economy of the future that serves more people. And so there in the imagining process and the creative process of that, there are many different challenges and obstacles that come up <laughs> and each one offers a new opportunity to, to learn a little bit more about yourself. What I mean, I think that there's a lot of people that are do that, that are really focusing and doing this work of imagining a new economy. What was what was the impetus or, or what caused you to formalize? your your problem solving efforts into what we now know as the zebra unites movement yeah well the whole journey began so for some background i used to be a radio reporter i was an economic reporter for national public radio and i have a dear friend jennifer brandell who was also a radio reporter and so the foundations of radio reporting um, really come down to one principle, with, with especially for economic reporting, which is follow the money. 
And so the story is to be found by following who profits and how that impacts the system. So Jen and I have known each other for a number of years and we reconnected at a conference and we're really perplexed by the language of social impact financing and then the practice of it. So the distance between the theory and practice of social impact investing, it seemed to us that those investors were looking for the same type of returns as venture capital, or they weren't considering um, products or services in, in quote unquote social impact space that they have, have overlooked. So. My company was working in higher education at the time. Jen's is working in um, in journalism and media. Both of those are key to democracy, and yet social impact investing didn't consider those to be sectors worth really investing in. Uh, they were largely focused on the developing world, right? And you know, for understandable reasons. So. Um, we, our frustration allowed us to put into words, I think calling on a lot of our reporterly instincts to put into language and put into words the struggles that we were experiencing in the world that we wished for. And we published the Sex and Startups piece in 2016. And that was a very viral piece because the language was so provocative. You know, the opening line was startups like the male anatomy are designed for liquidity events. <laughs> and so it got... <laughs> Um, it got the attention of a lot of people. And we, Jen wisely put a survey at the end of it, and we heard from over 4,000 people saying, you're describing exactly a lot of the challenges that we faced in the dominant paradigm of the startup culture. So we took that year to metabolize and meditate on everyone that we heard from and then spoke with hundreds if not thousands of people. And then that was when we published the Zebras Unite Manifesto that late, uh, the, the zebra manifesto that sort of laid in distinction the dominant ethos that we saw of competition, winner takes all, very engineering heavy teams um, that were fundamentally based in companies creating shareholder profit and the movement that we wanted to see, which was collaborative, cooperative, mutualistic, community-based and had broader shared prosperity that was built into the business and governance model. When was that published? For uh, it was like February 2017. Mm -hmm. And so so then you've been doing this, this, this work has, has been formalized now for a little over two years, two and a half yeah. years-ish? It's an interesting Three. question. Um, it, it's the we had no idea that this was going to be a thing. <laughs> so um, it's been very organic and it's been a really humbling journey. So we published that in February 2017. Again, the response was quite overwhelming. And so we hosted our first convening called DazzleCon in November 2017. A group of zebras is called a Dazzle. And um, that response really showed that whatever was going to be created moving forward had to embody the principles that we were espousing. So we couldn't go and just, um, one of the things we called out as an example in the piece is this binary between um, a for-profit or a non-profit and B Corps and public benefit companies, it, they don't really solve that problem. So we had to go on a long journey to find a corporate structure that would align with our values. Um, it became very clear that a lot of people wanted to co-create this movement with us. And so a hierarchical top-down um, structure was not going to work. We had to find a way for it to be collaborative. 
and for everyone's gifts and talents that we're contributing to be considered as part of the value chain of the organization. Yeah. And so um, the way uh, to, your, to your question about how it became formalized after DazzleCon, we we spent the last two years experimenting with uh, what then emerged was um, there are now 45 chapters on six continents. So people really wanted to take the movement and make it their own. And that was something that was quite unexpected to us and really heartening. And so we have worked to figure out how to connect and support those chapters. And then we had, um, you know, Midyar Network came in and offered us funding to better understand the needs of our community. And so the last year has been uh, conducting this very in-depth survey of the community and then deciding on the corporate structure. And so what the corporate structure is that we ultimately landed on is a cooperative. And the cooperative allows people, you know, like um, REI or like your local food co-op, you buy into a membership, you pay annual dues. And then we needed to figure out, okay, if this co-op exists, how does that co-op have a mutualistic relationship with the fund? So many uh, people had asked us to start a zebra fund. And so essentially the co-op becomes a co-owner of that fund. It's a joint venture with our fund manager, Second Muse Capital. So as a zebra comes into the co-op and they glean various benefits uh, around the resources that we're providing in that community, if they decide to apply for capital through the Zebras Unite Fund, then when those investments return dividends, it's the co-op that benefits. And so the members of the co-op benefit. And so now what you have essentially is the opportunity for a mutualistic relationship between um, the people receiving the funding and then the larger community of practice that they're a part of. So it's a three it's a three pronged approach: um, the co-op, the fund, and then we also have a nonprofit. And the nonprofit is aimed to continue to provide the educational support around the mission. But that unique structure took quite a lot of exploration and lawyer, very creative lawyers and a lot of conversations. And each step along the way was a real deep questioning about our values and our ethos and um, how we wanted to show up. I really, really appreciate that. The, the, what, what it is that I really am trying to exemplify with these conversations is is that the first thing that people need is patience. Mm -hmm. Patience mm -hmm. with themselves and patience with their communities. Because we live in this world that is like, I need an answer now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, and when we are entering what I hope to be this amazing new space where the imagination is able to play a much bigger role, and when we are reimagining, when we're employing creativity, that exploration, it, it requires space for mistakes. It requires space to be able to try. It requires space for conversation that will not yield immediate resolutions. Yep. You know, and, and I really just um, personally in my life, I want to advocate for, for creating and maintaining that space. And, and moving on, how has this, how has this worked for y'all? Where's, where is Zebras Unite at now? What's the, you know, what's the short and medium term future looking like for y'all? Yeah, I so appreciate you calling that out. Um, it's something that very often doesn't get called out. And just to put a fine point on it, 
you know, some of the cooperative law that we that, that made this possible was modified in the last couple of years. And so like, had we not waited, and to your point, had we not like lived through those questions and been patient through the process, the structure itself wouldn't have existed for us to adopt. Um, and I just think that your point is so well taken that there was this sense that we were being asked that question quite a lot of like, what's next, what's next? And you know, just reflecting on it, yeah, there were there were modifications to cooperative law that allowed for different multi different multi stakeholder ways that people could show up. That pri when we wrote the manifesto, did not really exist in a formalized way that now do. And so, I think giving ourselves that patience. So, what's next is again to the point of patience. Everything has to be co created and co designed in this movement. And so kind of what is born is the will of the energy behind that. Um, so in terms of next steps, we were going to host something called Dazzle Camp in, um, in May, but that obviously is canceled for reasons that we are all living through. Mm -hmm. And so we'll probably be doing some online programming in June or July. And the real goal is to galvanize people around the major insights that our census, that our survey um, revealed. So the survey was so in-depth and we noticed so many really interesting patterns about founders. Many of them were very unexpected and deserve further conversation because I think it provides some insight into the entrepreneurs of the future and what they're doing. And so we'll be surfacing some of those insights with the census in June and July, and then we'll move forward to launching the cooperative itself probably in the summer. Are, are you in, are you are you in a position? Are you able to to give us some insight as to what some of these some of these insights are that you found that are are so unique? Like, sure, yeah. Um, you know, one really interesting question that we asked people was to describe their life experience. Uh, some of the challenging life experience. So so often, you know, people will bucket women and people of color as this like group in um, in startups. And we really wanted to get more granular about the challenging life experiences that people may have faced. And so we asked questions that led to insights like the number of people that are first-generation college students or first-generation entrepreneurs, um, people that didn't have access to friends and family funding that helped us to better understand um, some of the, the capital in, that, that was available to them in their community. Another question was being raised in a single-parent household and how many entrepreneurs had that experience. And what that question taught us was the intersectional challenging life experiences actually make zebras more resilient. So <laughs> as you're living through all of those, you know, um, all of those, those circumstances that societally make it much more challenging to make it by in the society, that essentially becomes an, an asset because the resilience and the collaboration that you're then compelled to behave with creates a more um, resilient and collaborative uh, founder. And so I think we wanted to remove this language of, you know, underrepresented or underserved founders. It, it just, the vernacular of it is very complicated, but how could we start to think about the life experiences that they did have that were making them better and more resilient and more collaborative founders? <laughs> and how could those life experiences actually be turned into an asset instead of what has been perceived 
as um, as not not so. So I think that was an interesting question. That yeah, that's kind of one example yeah. of an interesting question. And and, and if, if I may, how is how is that influenced, or what what type of programming or educative focus uh, is that now going to perhaps be turned into or or whatnot to serve? I think it's kind of up to the community, but one, um, you know, knowing, I think it's now that we have the wisdom and the knowledge, we can bring that to the community and say, so what does programming look like that's intersectional and considering and considers multiple vectors of life experience? And before, we wouldn't have been able to have that insight about the community. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. I'm just going to take a pause for a moment to just kind of collect my own thoughts because this is, it's, it's, it's really refreshing and wonderful to have these conversations and to be talking about and, and to be, again, just holding space for the expansiveness of the human identity and the human experience. Thank you so very much for listening. If you'd like to support this podcast and learn about other projects I'm pursuing, I encourage you to become a patron at patreon.com slash cultureclap. Members get first access to applications I'm building, sneak peeks and exclusive leaks of music I'm recording, as well as the satisfaction of helping a brown orphan, helping you to build that better world we all know is possible through communication and unity. Though without any further ado, let us return to the conversation at hand with peace and power, gratitude and humility, Bamanos. You had mentioned that that you were that you were uh, uh, your your parents were artists and and musicians themselves. How is it? I mean, again, it is one of these things where yes, it is so easy to bucket women to bucket you know underrepresented people, but at the same accord, um, you know we we do live complex identities that are often pigeonholed and we need release. We need to find ways to refuel from, mm-hmm. from the pressures associated with that. For yourself, what, 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 what do you find or what has, what has allowed you to refuel and to re-energize? Hmm. Well, certainly nature, uh, as I mentioned, I'm in a very rural place. And so I, I, there were deer walking through the yard this morning and I saw some horses yesterday. So being near nature is like really has been very life affirming for me and um, song and medit- like song and silence. So, and movement uh, there, my life is filled with, you know, on any given day I can be working on or creating like 10 different Google docs and it is incredibly draining to have to um, be asked to it's a it's a huge privilege to be given the opportunity to formalize these ideas in language, but every conversation comes with like, great, so we'll wait for a proposal or we'll wait for the summary or we'll wait for the Google Doc. Um, and the uh, 
kind of the oppression of continuing to put this information into language when it's been so well documented. Uh, I, I need, that's where I need to have the most refueling is to wake up every day and be able to like write that next 5,000 word proposal that someone has asked for so that maybe I have a chance of funding or whatever. Um, and so I, I think a lot of my mental health challenges have been around the dispiriting reality of recognizing that I'm, I have to put this into words until I die. <laughs> and so, so part of the, so part of the practice and release that I have is um, in nonverbal. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it here in, in a moment, but I mean, the, the cognitive work Mm-hmm. of transforming these these nebulous these abstract yet cognitively concrete ideas into 26 letter segments mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that are able to break through some of the cognitive barriers of others yeah i mean that is there's a lot of heart work that goes into that brain work as well because yep. especially that is the struggle is is that you know there there are there are some people who for better or for worse their heart is not necessarily in their work mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know and so there isn't the the added anticipation the added anxiety and the added you know desires and and expectations mm-hmm. of, of trying to create these results that we also know are you know we're we're asking for something new yeah. You know, it's, well, you know, how, how is that based upon what's been? Well, it really, mm-hmm. it's based upon what could be. And those possibilities are based upon knowing that there's something better than what has been. How yeah. can I describe that to you? <laughs> you yeah. Know, it's difficult. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better myself. That's exactly right. And, and so you're working within the constraints of the old paradigm in order to try to envision a new paradigm. And it's almost like the most informative work that I've read is in science fiction, because there's not, you know, you, the, the imagination has to work so hard to paint that picture of the future of what you're talking about. And grant, propo- grant proposals don't um, inspire that type of, <laughs> that type of language and, and spirit. So yeah, I love what you have to say about that. No shade on those committees reading the grant proposals, but. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think they're, it's also clear that they're working within existing frustrating paradigms of scarcity as well. So, you know, we have so many forward-thinking funders that recognize, like, the system is broken if you have a thousand applicants for a hundred spots. Um that it's that itself is replicating the pernicious quality that we called out of competition over mutualism. And so some of the conversations I've been having with funders have been, can you take a beat, take some time to think about a new way? So if you have a thousand applicants and you bucket them into 10 practice areas, and then the funding becomes everyone gets it. But the thing is, you're getting the funding if you figure out how to collaborate and how to create efficiency and how to constellate and create more of a, a connection. Because, uh, you know, the, we're going to have such a bloodbath with nonprofits over the next couple of years. And so really, consolidation in the best, best sense of collaboration and cooperation is within these social impact sectors. That's what's needed. And I think philanthropy offers such a compelling way to incentivize that collaboration. 
by saying, okay, everyone get in a room, figure out what your strengths are, and then think about a way to co-deliver those services. So, so yeah. cool. That's my hope. You, you brought it on up, and I'm wondering, can you could, you could you drop a couple of titles for science fiction or some authors or some works that have been... Sure. I mean, you know, I've been reading a lot of um, Ursula Le Guin and uh, Octavia Butler, and I've just finally um, started reading Fahrenheit 451 and Ray Bradbury's work. I've never read Ray Bradbury's work. He's a new person that has been on my radar, and he is just wonderful. Um, have you read his I have his not. Work? I have not. I have not. Um uh, my uh, Robert Heinlein, Isaac Asimov, and uh, Robert Robert Anton Wilson. Oh, okay. Some of the I'll major write those down. That I've read. Um, cool. Regarding Ursula, Ursula, how do you pronounce her last name? Ursula K. Le Guin, I guess. Is, yeah. Le, okay. Um, what would be a great introductory book? I've I'm not familiar. I I know of her. I guess I'm familiar, but I haven't read anything. Recommendations on an introduction. Um, you know, there's the um, Earthseed is kind of the one that they recommend starting with. It's the first one in a five, um, it's a, it's, it has five volumes in that series. Okay. So okay. Earthseed is a really good one to start with, I think. How about Octavia Butler? Again, I've heard of, but I've not been able to delve too deeply. Yeah, similarly, um, the parable of the sower is this, um, yeah, the kind of body of that work. So great places to start and dive in. Thank you. Yeah. Super cool. Okay, and and again, you 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 broached the topic earlier, saying that that you know in 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 previous times you were an economic radio reporter. Mm -hmm. If I may, what what formal training have you had previous? Yeah, great question. So in the last recession in two thousand eight two thousand nine. I was living in Philadelphia at the time, and I remember being in um, my office and listening to This American Life, and there was a story called Giant Pool of Money that they did. It was right after the financial crisis with the mortgage-backed securities, and their reporter, Alex Bloomberg, who's a remarkable reporter, managed to find some people that were underwater in their mortgages and refinancing who were willing to go on the record to talk about how it was that they, without a job, without any credit, walked into a bank and got $500,000. And suddenly the crisis that we were living through had this incredibly tangible um, uh, like color <laughs> because he was tracing this all the way back to human beings and saying this is how essentially no doc loans, no documentation loans mm -hmm. um, were created and then how those were bundled and then how those were securitized and here we are today. And so it finally clicked because he was starting with the personal that I could then extrapolate to better understand the like macroeconomic trends. And so uh, as a result, like there and then I said, I want to study with this man I was a reporter at the time um, working freelancing for the Boston Globe and the Philadelphia Inquirer. And I was doing quite a, I had a weekly column in our uh, weekly newspaper, the Philadelphia Weekly. And at the time I was reporting quite a lot on the economics of food and food justice. And I just said, I want to do this through radio because the human voice in economic stories can provide such depthful reporting. So Alex Bloomberg was a professor at the time, an adjunct professor at Columbia Journalism School. And so I applied to Columbia 
and um, was grateful to get in. And so spent the year reporting this very in-depth story about um, mortgage fraud in Jamaica, Queens. And it just allowed me, his class and, and the incredible education I received at Columbia allowed me to take this one microcosm of a story around mortgage fraud and through penetrating all of the different angles, I kind of cut my teeth in economic reporting at a lot of different angles. And so then after that became an economic reporter working out of WHYY, uh, which is the NPR station in Philadelphia, in Philadelphia and then um, ended up reporting for Planet Money, which was the, the economic offshoot that Alex created after that story. Um, and was able to do some reporting for them and some reporting for Marketplace. Um, so yeah, I, I'm very lucky to have worked with Alex Bloomberg and Gregory Warner, who was at the time the health desk reporter for Marketplace. And the both of them had a really humanistic way of doing economic reporting. And that ability to synthesize through human storytelling gave me a lot of um, just tools in my toolbox for how to make things accessible. Maybe could you highlight maybe one, two or three of those tools that you now have in your toolbox that you find yourself reaching for? Well, I, I think a lot of it, you know, a lot of economic reporting is about, uh, especially marginalized communities have been told their whole lives that economics are, is beyond them, that, you're too, you, you know, you need some type of MBA or you have to be a stockbroker. Yeah, there's kind of this, exactly this like talking down to. And um, so, you know, communities understand what their problems are and it really requires giving the voice to the people that are, um, it's not even giving them voice. It's like, it's not that at all. It's just like- Amplifying those with voices. Them. Yeah, starting with them. <laughs> that there are human beings on the ground that are impacted. And so you start with that. And so I think um, the greatest disservice of capitalism, one of them at least, is this notion that people aren't smart enough to understand the dynamics. So, of their own lives. Of their own lives, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> exactly. Talk about science fiction. Um, <laughs> so I became really passionate about teaching. Um, I, I held these things called pen salons, which were uh, salons that focused on the pension investments of my state of Oregon. And uh, at the time, it was groups of women who would gather together, you know, 70, 80 women. And we would go through the PDFs of the Oregon Treasury and where their investments were parked. And they would then... And take line by line the firms, you know, private equity firm here or real estate fund here. And then one person would go through the PDF and find the names. And then the next person would Google that firm and they would see, oh, they're not even located in Oregon. They're not even located in the U.S. They're located somewhere else. Oh, when we go to their fund manager page, it's just a wall of white men. And so that really became my passion I, I wish I had a name for it now, but it was a, like real, t it was basically like training people to be economic reporters and then recognizing that, you know, if you could just get over the anxiety of going into the PDF or going into the Excel spreadsheet and you then took that data and started to Google it. And it was, it's remained some of the most impactful work of my life because, you know, I had women like emailing me at two in the morning saying, I can't unsee what I've seen. Like, I understand now how the system works. And that is really what I 
am aspiring for is to bring as many people along with me who are curious on this journey as possible. So I don't know, it's kind of like a didactical reporting, like, you know, sprint of teaching people to become economic reporters, but I get a lot of um, satisfaction out of that. That is so, so super cool. And, yeah. and, and it seems like I, it, there's, there's so many skills that you seem to continually be accessing and, and innovating within yourself and especially um, in all that you're doing with Zebras Unite, so on and so forth. I mean, it's, that's, that's the one thing that really kind of, you know, in another conversation, I'd love to learn more about, you know, the, the legal changes that allowed for the cooperative to be as it is. I mean, you know, these are, you know, and, and when you are, um, when you are, for lack of better language, spearheading these initiatives, you, you, you really got to be able to learn a lot of broad sets of knowledge. Um, looking forward in, in, into what the next year brings for you, what, what are some of the, the, the skill sets and, and the knowledge bases that you're really trying to invest yourself to learn more in? Hmm. Well, I think the way that I've been describing it is being an entrepreneur and having my own startup and uh, working on that business side you're constantly on the demand side of capital. So writing all those great proposals, you know, you have the funder over here and then you're over here. And so if you think of it in terms of marketplace dynamics, it's like supply and demand. And I, for the last decade have been just um, really slogging on the demand side of like, please see the thing that I am building as being worthy of your funding or attention and let allow, <laughs> please bestow upon me the resources in order to make this dream real. Um, and I think especially given what we're seeing with the way that the payment protection plan was deployed in the US and that total, I mean, we have just obliterated all of the gains that we've made around economic mobility for black entrepreneurs, Latinx entrepreneurs, women, because the PPP funds were primarily granted to big companies that already had pre-existing banking relationships with their banks. And that excludes the vast majority of founders that we care about. And I think seeing that this isn't a blink of an eye, you know, like it's less than a month that we have poured $500 billion into doubling down on a racist system. And I think that moment has given me a kind of like rattled my brain a little bit. I've had to take a lot of time and thought to examine that structure, how it could be, um, how, th how that could possibly be possible. <laughs> and what I guess the long way of answering you, you is I'm much more interested in the supply side right now. So, you know, money is an agreement. Money is a currency. Money should be flowing through communities. And I think we've reached the limits of our imagination of how money can flow through the capillaries of our communities, um, we have to start to re-examine, if we're going to continue to have some form of currency for the, at least the immediate term, we have to start to think about how that capital, that primary capital itself is um, found and distributed towards the interests of the people that are paying into that system. So yeah, I'm looking forward over the next few years to moving much more towards the policy and advocacy side and then coming up with creative ways of um, like new taxation structures. And so I think we have are limited by our imagination in terms of what we think of should be taxed, whether that's payroll or corporate taxes. I know all of us are banging the drum to have companies like Amazon pay their fair share and so on. 
but there are actually some kind of more underground um, interesting ways of of taxing different things that I've just been researching and getting really jazzed about. So that is, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and, and so, so uh, folks that are interested in Zebras Unite, what are some of the best ways for you guys to connect? Is there anything coming on up here in the short term that people should have their eye out, ears out for? Yeah, so join us at zebrasunite.com. And if you join our mailing list, we'll let you know about um, webinars that are coming along. We've been doing a whole series called Exit to Community, thinking about how companies can exit to their employees and their user base. And uh, that's been a lot really interesting work. Um, we'll have some more coming up around the census or the survey and what we've learned with the survey. And then we'll have some programming to sort of um, supplement and or supplant the Dazzle Camp that we had. And then look out for the announcement of the cooperative um, and an invitation to join and help us to co-create that later this summer. Y'all for real. Check out the work that Mara and the Zebras Unite community are pursuing. The methods that they are employing are models that we can learn from and emulate to build the inclusivity that will sustain the better world we all know is possible. That said, Mara, thank you so very much for sharing of your time and conversation with all of us here on the five QI podcast. And for those interested in supporting the conversations we're having here on 5QI, I encourage you to become patrons at patreon.com slash cultureclap. Up next on episode four, we've got a conversation with Cristina Costa of Women with Purpose. It's a fantastic conversation and I'm super excited to share it with y'all. So, until next time, I do hope you're able to find some peace between the frequencies.